I always start by making sure that they have a bookkeeper. And I really do recommend not DIY bookkeeping unless you are one of the, you know, special exceptions who just loves bookkeeping and is actually good at it. There's lots of people who don't mind posting transactions, but when it comes to actually making sure you have a bank reconciliation done, that's another question. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Except the taxes are very rarely certain. And at least in the US, taxes are a labyrinth of confusion. Our tax system is basically founded on the idea that the government knows how much we owe them, but they're not gonna tell us. We have to guess. And if we guess wrong, we either pay more or go to jail. Not really the friendliest system. I'm Susan Bowles and you're listening to Break the Ceiling the show where we break down unconventional strategies you can use to save time, boost your profit, and increase your operational capacity. We've been talking about risk and resilience in your business and how they're intimately intertwined. In the first two episodes of this theme, we've talked about the relationship between risk and resilience, and we talked about the biggest financial risk for businesses, cash. So if you missed those first two episodes, go check them out. Now, If cash flow and cash management is the top concern for folks I work with, a close second is taxes. Very few people I talk to feel confident about their tax strategy. Taxes are often a bit of an afterthought for business owners, something to be afraid of. It's this almost mystical, unknowable, ephemeral thing. For most folks, having a quote unquote tax strategy means making sure that you're dumping money into a tax reserve savings account so that you have enough to pay whatever it is that you're supposed to pay at the end of the year. And that's pretty much where it ends. Now, that's great and a very essential first step because there's a real risk of losing your business because you messed up and you didn't have enough cash to pay your tax bill. And if you ignore paying taxes for too long, sometimes you just can't come back from that. It's happened to lots of business owners who lost their business or even went to jail for unpaid taxes. So putting cash aside in a separate bank account and making sure it's untouchable goes a long way towards mitigating against that risk. But there's another side to taxes. Having a strong tax strategy allows you to avoid risk, sure, but there's another side to taxes. Having a strong tax strategy allows you to avoid risk, sure, but also to use that strategy to make sure that every single dollar in your business is being used in the most effective way possible. Because every dollar that you spend paying taxes that you didn't have to spend is a dollar that you could have used on something else. It's a dollar that could have gone to raise your personal wages or the wages of your team. It's a dollar that could have gone to hire that consultant you're dying to work with. It's a dollar that could have gone towards paying for a software tool to make your life easier. And your tax advisor is the person who can make sure that you're not wasting any of those dollars. Because each one of those dollars could go towards making your business more resilient, more profitable, or just more fun. Now, you might think that because I'm a CFO, I do my own taxes. I definitely do not. Taxes are one of those things that it takes a lot of time and effort to be an expert on. And quite frankly, I'd rather pay someone who is the best at doing taxes than try to figure it out myself. I consider the money I pay to my tax accountant some of the best money I spend all year. I always get a great return on that investment because they're able to save me so much more than I actually pay them. Not to mention, 
I don't have to deal with the headache of doing my taxes myself. I consider my tax accountant one of the most important financial partners for my business. They help me make sure that I'm using every dollar in my business in the most effective way possible. That's what a good tax advisor does. My guest today is one of those tax advisors. Meet Luke Fry of TimberTax. Luke was the first accountant at Bench.co and has been helping entrepreneurs with their accounting and taxes for nearly a decade. He knows what it's like on both sides of the table because he had his own business as a teenager where he learned how to manage his quarterly taxes. And today we're going to talk about all things tax, from recent tax code changes that business owners should be thinking about to what your relationship with your tax professional should really look like. Hey, Luke, thanks so much for being here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So taxes. <laughs> the um, the tax code has changed quite a bit in the last you know year or two, particularly for service business owners. What are some of the biggest changes that you think they should know about? What what should mm-hmm. we be paying attention to? Yeah, that's a really good question because you know anytime there's a huge change like that, it's hard to know what's applicable and and the tough thing is you know I can go over a few of them but there are so many exceptions to the exceptions to the rules that have exceptions Um, (laughs) so generally speaking one of the biggest new wins actually the the tax change really did work in favor of small business owners and that's with the QBI deduction the qualified business income deduction and you can think of it sort of like you know in, on our personal tax returns we have a uh, standard deduction and the qualified business income deduction is similar it just says based on your income on a certain business within a certain amount of dollar figures, uh, you get an extra deduction. So overall, that's just a huge win. Um, the problem with that and why it's difficult to go into too much detail is there's phase out limitations and there's different industry rules, but the, the long and short of it really is we get an extra deduction, awesome. Now, part of that really does complicate some things that we maybe talked about in the past with tax planning, uh, especially with S-Corp stuff, which I assume we'll probably talk a bit more about. But um, there's sort of all these circular calculations that refer to each other in, in your tax return. And the QBI is just another one to be aware of. So it complicates things when somebody says, you can save $10,000 on your taxes by doing this where if you do that, there's other things that move now, including the qualified business income deduction. Um, The other really big change is the state and local tax deduction on your personal tax return. You used to be able to deduct much more of that. So if you live in a state like New York or California where the state taxes, state income taxes are much higher, you probably ended up owing more on your federal taxes because that limit was set to $10,000. The other big change was around entertainment. So like meals and entertainment. When it comes to meals, that typically is about the same. That that becomes convoluted just because if it's an overtime meal or meal provided uh, as part of a long work day versus travel, there are some different nuanced rules. But when it comes to entertainment, if you were spending a bunch of money taking people to go see the Mets or the ballet, you can no longer deduct that. So entertainment is no longer deductible. 
Mm. So what opportunities for tax savings do you think that um, a lot of business owners are kind of missing out on or not paying attention to? Sure. I would say we can group that into a couple of different categories, mostly around people who are doing it themselves versus working with somebody, uh, working with a qualified professional more specifically. I say that because a, a surprising number of our clients came to us from having their dad do their tax return. And they, they might not really be that young, but for some reason that was just part of their paternal relationship. Uh, and so I would say the biggest thing uh, that people are surprised to learn is about a SEP, IRA, capital S, capital E, capital P. And that is one of the lightest duty, most bang for your buck deductions for anyone who's self-employed or has their own business. And that allows you to contribute almost $60,000 within, again, a certain threshold towards your retirement. So it's fully deductible and uh, becomes a contribution to, to your retirement. Whereas a traditional IRA, that limit is you know well under $10,000. I don't track them every year because they always change, but it's around 6,000. Um, so the SEP IRA is a really wonderful tax savings tool if you have cash. And mm -hmm. so that's something that people often are just completely unaware of. Uh, and I think that's a really common theme with the tax law in general is there's so much of you don't know what you don't know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a reason that like, I'm a finance person, and I still don't do my own taxes. Totally. The last few months have been pretty crazy in the world of accounting. Mm -hmm. there, there have been a lot of changes happening. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest changes or impacts that you've seen with your clients? I, the biggest change has been uh, a lot of clients just not having any sort of revenue. And so... They've had to really rely on government help, which has been fascinating to see how, in a lot of ways, the government has adapted to allow self-employed people qualify for the Pandemic on Assistance program, which has been really nice, uh, as well as the SBA loans really coming loose, which no one really knew how all that was going to work. So there was this you know, huge onslaught to apply for the EIDL Economic uh, Injury Disaster Loan. And then all of the focus switched over to the payroll protection program. And it's just interesting to see how, you know, when we're working with people who are making under a million dollars, but most of this, these laws are really written for people who make hundreds of millions. So it's interesting just to see how small business have to continue to adapt to interpret those types of things. Yeah, I think this was one that was difficult for everybody, you know, especially the the PPP loan. Mm -hmm. There was just so and still is mm, yeah. <laughs> like they they threw this thing out there that initially seemed like it was going to be this huge safety net for a lot right. of businesses. Um, but the way that they did it, I think a lot of the businesses who would have most benefited from it weren't the ones that were that certainly yeah. weren't the ones that got it on the first round um and I, I think there was just so much confusion for everybody around what should they do what shouldn't they do how do they get it um and 
it just seemed like just craziness on the part of accountants, banks, <laughs> business owners, government, and nobody really yeah. knew which way to turn. And everybody was in really desperate straits. I don't think anybody really ever does their forecasts, assuming that revenue and the economy is just going to right. come to a complete screeching halt. Like everybody, like, oh, you're conservative. But nobody's like, hey, what happens if the economy just stops? Right. <laughs> like, what, what happens yeah. then? Yeah, and I think you know, the same types of things where a, a person who has their own business might you know, just try to navigate who do you ask these questions to, and it continued to be unclear, and you know, because certainly some of the loan questions the SBA should be able to answer, but if they're not available, who do you ask? And then the banks may not really know, so then you know, it's kind of just a big collaborative effort to try and figure out how to get the right answer. Yeah, I um, I definitely felt <laughs> for those of you in a position where you're trying to navigate and understand and interpret the rules that are happening as mm -hmm. they come out, as the guidance is still, you know, we're what, four months down the road from the PPP loan being released and they still can't decide how or what or who gets forgiven. Yeah. Um, in a point when everybody actually is in desperate need of working capital and answers. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think there are any opportunities that came out of that new legislation that you think uh, small business owners, folks should be aware of or thinking about taking advantage of? I think it's, you know, just a lot more generous and perhaps more in line with what the initial purpose was as far as the percentage of payroll, uh, and then the t time period for forgiveness. I think that what there was this mini panic where people were trying to game the system when all the loans were first coming out. And I think the reality is we still don't have concrete answers, but as long as you're generally using it for the intended purpose uh, and not trying to game the system, you know, it should be even more beneficial than it was. Hmm. Um, so any, when you are working with your clients in terms of advising them, is there any specific tax provisions or anything that you think has been a big change that is something for folks to consider? With regard to the SBA loans or? Either, either the SBA loans or some of the CARES Act provisions. Um, I know there's been some tax leniencies, like the tax date moving for this year and mm -hmm. some of the ability to like defer uh, payroll taxes and those sorts of yeah. things. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of our clients may not actually have uh, a lot of employees. It's a lot more owner draw type of a situation. So it continues to be sort of this weird area that's not particularly considered in a lot of this legislation. So, you know, I definitely refer a lot of people to Gusto. And so leaning on them in regard to a lot of the payroll stuff, uh, but really just trying to think through as best we can with a client specific situation. Um, and really the idea being that there are so many things that we're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, so as long as they're not overextending themselves too much or, um, you know, at least using whatever payroll protection program funds they got for 
you know, at least at 60% for payroll, then they should be fine. But, you know, we still don't really know how it's all going to shake out until we submit the final applications. Hmm. So shifting a little bit and looking at kind of some risk assessments, talking about how you, you discuss risk with your clients, um, people saving for taxes or rather not saving enough for taxes is a mm -hmm. pretty big risk and a pretty big consideration for self-employed folks. So how do you approach the question of, you know, how much people should be putting away or budgeting for taxes? Mm -hmm. I always start by making sure that they have a bookkeeper. And then if you have a bookkeeper, uh, and I really do recommend not DIY bookkeeping unless you are one of the, you know, special exceptions who just loves bookkeeping and is actually good at it. There's lots of people who don't mind posting transactions, but when it comes to actually making sure you have a bank reconciliation done, that's another question. So, um, and then just reviewing the financials. But I think what every business owner should be able to do is look at an income statement at the end of the month and say, okay, what was my net income? What's my bottom line? And then if they have that, they can then say, okay, my accountant, me, <laughs> says I should be setting aside 30% of my net income, you know, especially if I'm not in California or New York where that might be more like 40%. Uh, and if you set aside that 30 or 40% of your net income every month, I always recommend that they have a separate income tax savings account. And so as the year goes by, if you were if you weren't making any payments in, but at least you could take your net income to date for the year, multiply it by the 30% and then look at the amount in your income tax savings account, you almost always will be okay. You know, like certainly part of our work is to try and uh, strategize how to minimize the taxes and maximize deductions, but there's still going to be just a very general about 30% you're going to end up owing. And then if you ended up actually having a, an effective tax rate of closer to 20%, well, that's just wonderful. Good, That's a win in that case. So always have a bookkeeper, have a separate savings account for income taxes, and you know review that stuff every month. Hmm. So backing up a little bit from taxes, um, just generally, you know, how do you approach assessing risk with your clients and their businesses? You know, is that a discussion that you're having with them or um, how do you approach risk with your clients? Yeah, I think that the way I think about risk has more to do with, you know, are you making sure that you have appropriate records, you know? And so it's uh, certainly people come to me in the are very concerned about audits or audit red flags, or they might be concerned with, um, you know, not wanting to take certain deductions because they're worried about being audited. And my recommendation is always, if it's ordinary and necessary, and if you're not intentionally committing fraud and the law says you can deduct it, you know, let's just make sure you track all those expenses appropriately, save receipts for things like business meals and travel, and then deduct it because you're entitled to deduct it. So as long as you're not intentionally committing fraud, I don't think there's any reason to worry about making a legitimate deduction. And then, you know, certainly this borders on territory might be more uh, yours or even like a financial planner as far as, you know, people say, how much cash should I have in savings, you know? And 
if somebody's asking that question, I think that's really a good start. That means they're at least thinking about it. And I would always say that, you know, definitely having at least one month of expenses in some sort of an emergency fund, and then potentially three or six months. And that might depend on, you know, if you're in a double income household or a single income, whether you have people depending on you, and, you know, might be a lot more to do with are you planning to grow the business? How uh, recession-proof is your business? Hmm. Can we circle back to documentation for a mm -hmm. minute? Um, because I think a lot of people have questions about, you know, what what receipts do they need to keep? What where do they need to keep it? What what information should they be keeping in case of an audit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one ground rule there is, you know, make sure that you are using your business accounts for business. And then if you're paying yourself either through an owner draw, transfer that money to a separate account so that if you were audited, you're just having to provide your business bank statements or credit card statements instead of your personal stuff too. Because ultimately the burden of proof is always on the taxpayer. So, if, you know, if it got as far as having to be in court, you would be the defendant. So you have to defend the legitimacy of your deductions. Things that are particularly uh, personal are items that you should focus on first. So meals, you know, you're going to eat anyway, so the IRS is less uh, likely to look at that as a business expense. But, you know, make sure that you save a digital copy of some sort. It's totally fine of business meal receipts. You should always be putting on who you were with, you know, what the business purpose of that meal was, and clearly documenting that. Uh, you know, a lot of bookkeeping softwares actually let you attach the receipt to the transaction. That's the most ideal. Uh, otherwise, just having a big scan of them that you could either upload to something like HubDoc or even Evernote, something that would automatically make them readable through OCR is definitely a nice option. Receipt Bank is another option. You know, there are a lot of ways to have these receipts available because that's really what they're there for, just just in case. So most of the time you won't need them, but just in case you're audited, you need to have that proof. Other receipts that you need to keep in mind are travel, similarly, is primarily personal. So if you're going to some sort of a workshop or, you know, obviously that's a lot less uh, right now, but if you are attending something in Vegas, say you definitely want to make sure that you have clear documentation of, okay, here's the conference I was going to. The final area where documentation is really important is, you know, anything that is considered an asset, which from the IRS point of view, we typically think of that as something that costs over $2,500. So that's a computer, an expensive camera, very nice microphone, something like that you know, certainly vehicles, you need to make sure that you have the actual purchase documents to track that because you ultimately will get rid of that or you'll dispose of the asset. And we need to track the initial cost, which what we is what we call basis. So business meals, travel, fixed assets, those are super important. Uh, also anything that you might purchase from a general store like Amazon, you know, you can purchase so many different things on there, so we need to make sure that we have a record to say this was a business transaction. Hmm. So what are some 
tax pieces besides what we're missing out on that you see pretty consistently um, messed up either from people that are doing their own books or um, when they come to you, mistakes that they potentially have been making? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think number one mistake is doing your own books. I would say (laughs) like one out of 10 people maybe do that really well. And if it's, if it's not your background and you're wanting to learn how to do it, it's, it's a profession. It's a completely different skill set. You can learn it, but I think your, your highest and best use of your time is always your core revenue producing, most joy producing thing. Uh, and if you just really love the numbers and, and, and the organization, I might recommend Sudoku and crosswords instead. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, use that time to actually review the financials. People often say, I want to do my own bookkeeping because I want to be closer to the numbers. And I say, it's not one or the other. You can have somebody else do the bookkeeping. And that time that you were spending matching receipts and reconciling accounts, you can now use to actually look at financials, compare it to a plan or goal for the quarter or year, and then make strategic decisions. Like that's way more valuable for your time than getting the bank balance to match. Yeah. And I also think um, oftentimes folks say that they're going to do their books on their own um, Mm, and then they don't. (laughs) They're like, no, no, I totally do my own books. And I'm like, okay, cool. When was the last time you actually did them? And they're like, oh, like Mm -hmm. four months ago. And now it's so overwhelming and I can't, like, I can't convince myself to do it. And the end result of that is, is you basically have no books to look at. You have no finances to look at. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I, I love that. (laughs) And I would say, you know, you asked about the tax problems, right? And I guess an important point of that is I really think of taxes and accounting and your, even your personal finance as like a closed loop system. And your bookkeeping is a direct input to any of the tax work that we do. And it's a guy-go-guy-go. So garbage in, garbage out. If your books are garbage, your tax return will be garbage. My advice will be garbage. And it seems like in addition to people who maybe do their own books and then it turns out they don't, you know, people assume they're really good at Excel. Uh, But I find oftentimes that may not really be the case. And and Mm -hmm. because you're good at Excel doesn't mean you're good at producing financials in Excel. Very true. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit. You mentioned um, the S Corp at the beginning of um, just a little bit earlier. Can we talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the differences between um, an LLC and an S Corp um, and maybe why people would want to pick one or the other? Mm-hmm. And then also, like, what are the tax implications of that? Because I know there's a lot, a lot of my listeners are in that kind of, which one should I pick? I could be either. It doesn't really matter, does it? What do I do? Totally. Yeah, I'll absolutely give my five-minute spiel on that with the caveat that it is so important to talk about this directly with a tax professional because I'll give you some clar- clarification and some best practices uh, the reality is your individual situation will completely dictate the right answer. Um, and so one of the most common questions I get too is, should I have an LLC? And I used to say, well, it depends. And that's really more of a legal question. Yeah, so ask your lawyer. But now I'm, I'm much more of the mindset that I say, go ahead and get the LLC set up. It's not going to hurt anything. 
and it does become another compliance thing you have to do every year with filing the annual report. But what it also does is it provides you this tax planning opportunity, and that is becoming an S corporation. So an LLC is something that you file with the Secretary of State, and that is something you should do in the state where you live, not Delaware, unless you live in <laughs> Delaware. Uh, <laughs> because when you're an LLC, it's what's called a disregarded entity for federal tax purposes. Disregarded is fancy IRS talk for saying they don't consider it a thing. And so they, it, it's basically you are an LLC. If you're not an S corporation, you're taxed exactly like a sole proprietor. So it changes absolutely nothing on your taxes. What it does change is the ability to do tax planning by electing to treat your LLC as an S corporation. So an S corporation is purely a federal and sometimes state tax election on an eligible entity. And at, at the risk of being too jargony, I do wanna keep saying eligible entity uh, because you need to be either an LLC or a C corporation first. And then you choose uh, on the, with the IRS to say, okay, I have this entity and I want you to actually look at it as an S corp, which then becomes instead of a disregarded entity that doesn't exist on its own, it becomes a flow through entity. And what that means is for federal income taxes, the tax due and the profit flows through to the owners as opposed to paying separately. So it is a separate tax filing, a separate federal tax entity, but it doesn't pay federal income tax. And I'm saying specifically federal income tax because there are some states that have gross receipts tax like Washington or city taxes. There are some times when the flow through would actually owe tax, but what I'm talking about now is purely the bigger amount of tax, which we're talking is federal income tax. So is there a good reason why someone would choose not to become an S-Corp? Absolutely. So I typically go through two sides of a piece of paper on this. And I say, there are some qualitative reasons not to be an S-Corp, and there are some quantitative reasons not to be an S-Corp. So qualitatively is like reasons why you will be setting yourself up for failure. If you hate accounting and taxes and wait till tax day or the extended deal deadline to do your taxes, then you just don't enjoy accounting. Don't force yourself to do more accounting. Even if you have it all properly outsourced or delegated, you're still going to have to spend a lot more time with somebody like me to manage your S-Corp. If you're not willing to have a bookkeeper, I wouldn't set up an S-Corp. Um, if you're not planning to keep at this business for the long run, which I might define as at least five years, don't set up an S-Corp. And if it's not something that uh, you're willing to invest in, there are lots of ways to set up an S-Corp very cheaply, but the problem is you typically get what you pay for in that situation. And you know, even with us, sometimes I try to explain, you, know, you might set up the S-Corp, maybe you did it on your own, but here are all the other services that you need in order to manage it. Uh, I, I compare an S-Corp to like a fancy car or a fancy watch that needs to have some maintenance done throughout the year. And if you don't maintain it, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work for a few years, but then 
at some point something is going to break if you're not properly maintaining it. And then, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's the quantitative side is really you need to be making at least 75000 after expenses before you pay yourself and before taxes. Uh, because the reason you save money on an S-Corp is you're playing with the FICA taxes. FICA taxes are what we might call payroll taxes if you're an employee, Social Security, Medicare, or um, self-employment tax if you're a sole proprietor. When you're a sole proprietor, you pay self-employment tax on everything up to the FICA wage base, which is just a threshold. It's about $130,000 this year. And when you're an S-Corp, you basically say, hey, I'm going to be an employee for part of it, and I'll pay myself a salary, which is different than distribution, and then I'm going to be taxed the rest of it just on the remaining profit. And that profit is not subject to any payroll taxes uh, or the FICA taxes. It's the same thing. And that's where you save the money. It's just balancing those. Hmm. So let's shift a little bit and talk about what kind of relationship do you think business owners should be cultivating or looking for with their accountant or their tax professional? Mm-hmm. I like to think of working with an accountant very much like working with a doctor, right? view them as the professional, provide as much of the information and facts as possible, and don't take tax advice from friends, right? So if you're working with a tax professional, make sure you vet everything through them that might have an effect on your taxes. Always come prepared, which means those financials that you have done, If the more up-to-date those are, the more up-to-date my advice can be for you, the more valuable our time is. Be proactive when things change. If you're moving, getting divorced, selling something, buying something, hiring, be proactive in initiating a conversation. And then a big thing that we've experienced with some clients or potential clients is multitasking. And we live in this world where we're all doing so many different things at the same time, but taxes are hard. Accounting is complicated. And the more you can focus, uh, the better. So you know, don't be driving. It sounds silly, but don't be driving when you're on the phone with your accountant. Don't be eating. Uh, I try to do as many video calls as possible. I just find it's a lot more uh, effective at being present in the conversation. Take notes, be curious, and really leverage the accountant as your professional providing you the advice. Try not to uh, dictate too much. I think that's just a personality thing in some ways where it's where's the crossover between delegation of like a goal versus you know I need this very tactical thing done and I think just treat it like any relationship that's very balanced and um, proactive. I like that. If you could offer kind of one tip the one thing you think business owners should be thinking about or action they should be taking um, either with their taxes or their finances what would that be? be willing to invest in the advice and the work of a qualified professional. Uh, it's so funny to me how much time we'll spend figuring out which iPhone to buy or Mac or, you know, what workflow software, but your taxes, if you're profitable are actually going to be one of your biggest cash outflows. And, you know, other than maybe your pay or a salary and how little time, we're willing to spend and even money we're willing to invest 
in figuring out how to whittle that down is really surprising to me. So I think if you can view an accountant as somebody who can pay for themselves, which most good accountants can, and also keep you out of prison, <laughs> then you're going to be way better off than shifting this mentality from doing everything yourself to, okay, how can I leverage the advice of an expert? No, I, I really like that and completely agree. I think um, that there, particularly when it comes to taxes, there is, there's so much to know. And I think there's no possible way to take advantage of all of those different aspects, unless it's something that you're doing all day, every day. And that's your, that's mm-hmm. your realm. And mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a, an ROI, you know, a lot of business owners were looking at what's the, what's the return on investment of me spending my time doing this. But I agree with you. I think taxes is one of those things where we don't really think about it as being um, a cash output or a specific cost, but it's one of those where when you are particularly strategic about it and you can actually, you, you spend time trying to make sure that you are taking every advantage that you can take there's mm-hmm. a significant amount of money that then you don't have to pay to the government that you can yeah. go do stuff with. You can invest in totally. your business. You can go on vacation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think non-financial people tend to potentially underestimate how big that can actually be. Mm-hmm. And it does, it does seem like there's a bit of a mismatch sometimes because the timing is a little bit off of when you pay for advice and when you reap the reward. And, and it's, I think this human nature to focus on the negative, which the negative I'm going to uh, assume is cash out. And the negative we avoid is a bigger cash out with your taxes. So I think it's totally legitimate to ask your accountant, you know, how much did you save me? Or, you know, can we go over that? Um, And I, I would say that a good tax accountant can, at least work with you to figure figure that out, at least in general terms of, you know, by managing your home office this way or your auto or your SEP or your entity, we can save about this much money, uh, which like I said, they should be able to pay for themselves typically. That's what we always do or work to do anyway, in the sense that those levers are available for us to pull. And not only are we taking care of a, a necessary thing, but we're also optimizing it in a way that is a win-win situation. Yeah, I, I like that. So if folks are looking for a new accountant or a new tax professional, what do you think they should be looking for? I know I've had a um, struggle trying to find a good fit as an accountant. Um, mm-hmm. And so what what do you think they should be looking for or questions that they should be asking when mm-hmm. they are interviewing new accountants to figure out if they're, you know, the right person, mm-hmm. if they're good or not. <laughs> yeah, certainly certification is a, a major one. So I'm, I'm a CPA in Washington state. And so that means I am licensed to, to do this stuff. Other totally reasonable certifications are EA, enrolled agent. Uh, but you could also work with a tax preparer who's neither of those things, who's got a P10 and has a ton of experience. The tough thing with your question is you don't know, it's kind of like working with a dentist and you don't know how good that filling was until five, six, 10 years down the road. 
when it maybe comes out and it needs to be capped. And similar to your taxes, like you submitting them or your tax person submitting them, like what is good? And I think the one of the only things that a consumer who's a non-tax person can really define is, is there an open line of communication? Do you feel like the person is willing to invest in helping you understand how to do things? Is it clear what they're doing for you? You know, one thing we're really working to do is not just do compliance. So compliance to me is H&R Block, fast food tax service on demand. And I think that is a real big disservice to people who could really be optimizing things. And so I would really say that um, figuring out how to have a conversation that you feel like you can participate in is critical. And then you kind of have to leverage this idea that if they're certified, if they have other clients in the same industry, they should be a good fit. Mm. Yeah. For me, I think the, that, that open line of communication to me is so important. And it was something that I really, really struggled to find because I think there are so many old school accountants out there that just want to sit in their office with their head down and file return mm-hmm. after return and not really step into that. Um, I think what the future of accounting is really going to be in that advisory role, um, exactly. really working in conjunction with their clients to make sure that they are taking advantage and that they're serving as that advisor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think also be willing to pay for that. Right. And yeah, I think that's, a very common thing, two of the most common reasons if somebody's working with CPA already, they come to me as they say, they don't reply to emails or mm-hmm. they didn't tell me when my quarterly taxes are due. So one, um, I think the accountant not telling you when your quarterly taxes are due, this is hopefully the meanest thing I say. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like getting a speeding ticket and being like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see the sign. I didn't know, you know. When you're a business owner, it's your responsibility to pay your taxes and know when they're due. Um, we work to notify all of our clients and really try to leverage automation through email stuff uh, to get that done. But the reality is, you know, when you're paying your accountant, be super clear on the scope. Like, are they just filing your return? Okay, so that's compliance looking backwards. Or do you have some sort of an advisory relationship where we can look forward and plan give updates and, and heads up on things when to be ready for the next deadline. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that advisory piece is um, probably where you get, you get the most bang for your buck because there's a lot of stuff that you can't take advantage of if you're only talking to your accountant at the end. Mm-hmm. Once it's yeah. all over, you can't, you can't start a SEP. You can't, um, buy an asset if you have extra cash you can't you can't do a lot of those you can't take advantage of a lot of those triggers um, Mm -hmm. when you're pulling them after the fact yeah what you're saying is what i've tried to repeat multiple times and i say tax planning happens moving forward right so we are looking forward that's what we're talking about with advisory and with the exception of some very few things you can't plan backwards (laughs) and you know, one of those is actually the SEP where you can contribute to the SEP up to the extended due line, the extended deadline or whenever you file. So like, for example, for 2019, if you have a SEP going, you could actually contribute October 15th, 2020, uh, if that's when you file your return. So it gives you an extra like nine and a half months to get that money together. So 
Yeah, that's one of the few things you can plan backwards, but overall, exactly. Advisory, forward-looking, uh, an ounce of planning is worth a pound of cure. Something Prevention, that's the benefit. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was, at least for me, that was that advisory piece. Um, I actually had a, a bit of a challenge finding an accountant that was interested in doing advisory and interested in that being part of the relationship. And I think that's a, a key piece for anybody that's looking for a tax professional is they should be looking for somebody who is going to provide that advisory, that's, that planning, because that's really where you get a lot of the benefit of working with somebody who knows what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, so is there anything you think we should talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Hmm. I, I think we've really gone over the most important things, which is, you know, focusing on leveraging professional and, and how to be ready for that. Uh, making sure that you have some sort of a process every month to take care of your financials um, and your tracking things and, you know when your deadlines are and you have some sort of an open dialogue with your tax account. And I think that's really the best advice I can give until I were to talk with somebody more specifically uh, about their situation. Mm. So where can our listeners find you if they want to connect or learn more about you and what you do? Yeah. So our website is timbertax.co. You can book a call with us right there. Uh, you can also find our Facebook page, facebook.com slash timbertax.co, our Instagram as well. You know, if you're a client, we actually do regular Thursday office hours. I do a Facebook Live and then am able to answer any questions as we go. We have a YouTube channel as well, which I might have to send you later because I actually don't have it on the top of my head. But if you went to YouTube and searched TimberTax, uh, you should be able to find us. And I post a lot of tips there. Uh, we have a blog where we're really we're really trying to leverage educating and empowering individuals who have their own business, especially somebody who may have read Company of One by Paul Jarvis. Definitely, mm-hmm. how can you be a more informed consumer, which makes our lives easier and your time, your money go further, way more valuable. Mm, interesting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you. Uh, coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. As Luke and I both mentioned, the financial team you have in place can be a huge advantage for you as a business owner. Working with a financial partner, any financial partner, can help shore up the foundations of your business, take time off your hands, and make sure that you're keeping your finances in tip-top shape. Finding the right tax professional to work with can be a bit like playing the match game, but It's similar to any other person you want on your team. You need to make sure that they're a good fit, they understand your goals and your business, and that you feel comfortable asking them questions and trusting their advice. Next week, we're shifting the focus from examining risks to moving towards resilience. I'm talking to Joanne Holmes about how to turn your intellectual property into additional sources of income for your business. So make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss it. Break the Ceiling is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld with production assistance by Kristen Rundvik.